News, politics, and special guests with a Texas twist. That's the goal of the Luke Messias Show. Our nation and state are at a crossroads, and if you're not informed, you're not equipped to make the change our community needs. Join the conversation and join the cause for liberty today. Welcome to the Luke Messiah Show. I hope you're having a great time on Christmas. I have taken vacation for a couple days, so I am coming to you in a pre-recorded segment wishing you a post-Merry Christmas, an upcoming Happy New Year, and uh, I hope you're getting geared up and excited about the legislative session that is coming in 2023. Texas only passes laws five months every two years. We're one of the few states in the union, I think two or three, that actually only meet every other year. And we have a very intense five-month session, which has to be intense if we're actually going to accomplish Republican policy, especially when we have a Texas House who seems so opposed to advancing so much important policy that is needed to preserve society. There are some fundamental things we're doing. Often we get so distracted by like one bill or two bills um, and don't see the broader issue at stake, right? We have a fundamental issue of transhumanism that is being shoved on our society. And this is something that needs to get fought on the university level. It's something that needs to get fought in the classrooms. It's something that needs to get fought within our medical community. It's something that needs to get fought within what businesses are allowed to do, whether actions on a business actually make it a sexually oriented business that needs to be reserved to only adults attending that business, being able to enter that business. This addresses drag shows. This in this addresses gender modification, the mutilization, genital mutilation of children. It addresses whether or not a teacher can talk to a second grader about sexual issues. It addresses whether we should have taxpayer money going to fund these gender queer study initiatives at universities, basically funding the indoctrination of our young adults. It's pretty insane. These, this is a larger issue. So then if you look at it from that perspective, you're then going to have to ask yourself the question at the end of the session is, did we address this overarching push of transhumanism? Okay. There's sex and there's gender and they are two different things. Sex is male and female and gender is man and woman. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? That is, it is okay to say these are two different things. It is not okay to say they're all the same thing. There's a huge difference between saying, hey, you have more manly men and more feminine men. You have more feminine women and more manly women. Let's say we used to call them tomboys. That's an okay thing to say. And to understand that like, uh, any of you who have friends and family members and siblings and people you know really closely, you know, like all of us end up somewhere on this spectrum. The difference is to say that you can go from being a manly man to a womanly woman and that this is an endless plane of honestly perverse expression because that's what it becomes when we take it out from man or woman, male and female. So at the end of the session, we're going to have to ask ourselves, like, did we actually address that broader point of contention? We have a huge war on parents 
And if we end this legislative session and say most of these parents are still trapped having their kids in a school that is indoctrinating them, whether they like it or not, most of them cannot access any and all curriculum. Most of them don't get to actually retain sovereignty over certain subjects. That is what Florida did when it said, hey, you can't talk to a first, second, or third grader about sexual issues. It's saying this is outside of the realm of what the education institution was created for, and this is the role of a parent, and that is sovereignly within the purview of a parent. We are not there to replace them. So is that issue as a whole addressed? Is the issue of whether or not we have a sovereign state with borders addressed? Every single session that has come before us, these guys have play, pay, played lip service or paid lip service. They all, sorry, got a little tongue tied there. They've just paid lip service to us and said, I funded this much of border security. I did this. I did this. But what they didn't say is I protected the sovereignty of Texas. Because if that was your goal and objective, then you would say, I am in the middle of building a wall. I have sent people down there. We have declared an invasion. We have stopped people from entering our country illegally. Because anything other than stopping them from entering our country illegally means that 2 million people are going to enter our country illegally between 2023 and 2025. And if that's unacceptable, then you have to do something about it. If you're not violently engaging with drug cartels on the border, if you are letting these drug cartels run the border operationally, then you're not taking your state sovereignty seriously. So if that's the standard, then what are they going to do to address that problem in 2023? Not, well, can we get one or two things? Because see, if you were going to address your state sovereignty, then you'd say, absolutely, we will eliminate taxpayer benefits to illegals. That's an easy step, but not the only thing we can do. And absolutely, we're going to build the wall. And absolutely, we're going to send more forces down to the border. And, and you know what? We're not just going to go down there and process them into the country illegally. We're going to stop them from coming. So these are the questions that we're going to ask ourselves. Here's what we're going to do today. I would like to actually republish um, a conversation I had with a number of, let's say, pastors and theologians Um Earlier this year. So for some of you, you heard our God and government conversation on the Luke Messiah show. Um, and we had that with Joel Webin, Brian Wolfmuller, um, Bill Peacock. Really enjoyed this conversation that we had. If you've already heard it, then you can, well, you don't have to listen to it again. I mean, you could if you wanted to, but you don't have to. Um, this is a conversation I put a lot of time into and honestly was really grateful that these men came and sat down with me because I think they added to it and helped make it a more productive conversation. And so this is a conversation they wanted to bring back to you. And I think it's a great thing to bring back just following the celebration of Christmas, which is a national holiday, but is also a Christian holiday. And so I hope that you are able to take some time to listen to the conversation we had with God and government. This is really specifically trying to discuss some of the theology behind what government is, how it was instituted by God, and how a Christian is to then engage with government. Joel 
Brian and Bill, I think all bring some unique perspectives. And this is really just a starter, meaning if you really want to dig in deeper, you're going to have to follow more theologians and more conversations. And if you have a desire to do that, please reach out to me, either email lukemacias.com, be more than happy to give you some more resources, books to read, and other thoughts um, and perspectives that you can dive into and help give you a more rounded perspective on what you believe, read, believe what you believe regarding God and government. So with that, I'm going to hope that you learn a lot from this conversation and wish you a happy upcoming new year. God bless you. Welcome to episode 166 of the Luke Messiah Show. Today's conversation I talked about last week a little bit, but it's going to be a little different than most of our conversations. Typically, we have political commentary. I enjoy a lot of one-on-one conversations with political nonprofits, elected officials, people in Texas that I think uh, are important when it comes to the direction of our society and state, which includes those in the church. Over the last several months, I've been having conversations. In fact, this This conversation really started in my mind back uh, at episode 157 in March when I talked about the de-churched Republican primary voters. And over the month of February, as I talked to a lot of Republican voters, realizing that many of them have started to just disconnect from the church entirely um, out of their love for politics and maybe their frustration with the lack of addressing of cultural societal issues from the pulpit and just the danger uh, that that just presents itself to individual Christians who are called to be engaged in a church, to serve in a church, um, to be poured into and then pour into others. And in the course of that, as well as my wife and I's transition from traditional evangelicalism into non-denominational church to Lutheranism, uh, I have been spending a lot of time since my life is in politics and government, studying and reading and discussing with my pastor and others the theologies and doctrines behind church and state. And that conversation has led to the conversation here today. So what we're going to do today, our goal, if you are a non-believer, in which we do have quite a few of those that listen and watch the Luke Messiah show, if you're a non-believer, you can feel free to stay for this conversation. Uh, But this is going to be a conversation of Christians for Christians primarily. Uh, If you want to learn about how we think and the things that compel our actions within society and the state, then feel free to listen. If you are a believer, here's my prayer. My prayer is that this conversation is something that causes you to consider more seriously the doctrine and theology that drives your actions, your actions on how you engage in society, how you engage with the government, why you engage. I'm concerned that so many of us are engaged in politics because we have a proclivity towards it, because we have a tendency towards liking these things. And then those Christians who are not are just the type of people that would rather not be engaged in those type of things, as opposed to us all as a body trying to think through and wrestle through why are we here? What are we to do? So I've asked several people to come and I'm going to introduce you to them real quickly. And then I'll let them talk about their views on this subject. So first we have Bill Peacock and Bill Peacock is um, a senior policy advisor. He has taken a few more college classes than myself and is considered even smarter as a result. Um, he is somebody who has been well-respected in state government for a very long time, but he's also a faithful Christian and uh, an active member at Redeemer Presbyterian here in Austin. Bill is somebody who I um, have talked to. In fact, he has a show here at Texas Scorecard, the Liberty Cafe, and he and I had a conversation 
conversation, specifically about Christians in government, how our faith affects when we are engaged in the political arena. And that is on his show. So I've asked Bill to join us. We also have Joel Webin and Joel is um, a pastor at uh, Covenant Bible. Joel is a transplant from California, which uh, we need more of in Texas. Everyone gets worried that the Californians are coming here, Joel, but the reality is that most Californians that are coming here actually don't hold the values of California. You and I have talked about this on your show. Uh, Joel also has, uh, rem- remind me, it is uh, Right, Response, right Ministries. Response Ministries. So you not only are a pastor, but you have Right Response Ministries. If you uh, want to learn more about Joel as you're talking, I think our listeners can uh, visit your YouTube channel, your website. You discuss a lot of these issues, mm-hmm. culture, the church, Christians. And so I think your view, uh, one of the things that will come out in some of your introductions, I'm sure, is is some of your eschatology as well. And our goal today, just so y'all know, is not to have too much of an eschatological conversation, because I'm sure that could be a whole nother 90 minutes mm-hmm. in and of itself. But mm-hmm. I know that that also will affect um, your viewpoints on this. So I think people will get to learn a little bit more about that. And then Brian Wolfmuller. And Brian um, is a pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church here in Austin, uh, somebody who is pretty respected, I would say, in most conservative Lutheran circles. You comment all the time on culture and society and church. Uh, I actually listened to your uh, one of your explanations on confession and absolution because we had, of course, John 20 was this last yeah. Sunday. And so in thought and study of that passage, I was sent uh, your commentary on that as well. And so wolfmuller.co is where That's somebody right. could go if they wanted to uh, learn more about you, see your YouTube channels, the commentary you've provided and, and things like that. So when all of our listeners kind of have context to that, uh, Bill, why don't you just start us off in general? You know, the topic of today's conversation, kind of lay out your general position. Sure. Well, well thanks for having me on, Luke. It's good to be here with, with you guys as well. Yeah. What? A, so I'm a Longtime public policy analyst, worked with Texas Public Policy Foundation. Before that, worked in state government and still doing policy related things. But right now, I'm also teaching government and economics at the 12th grade level at a, at a couple of different schools. And so that has really forced me to, you know, bring all this, you know, theology and policy and philosophy all together as I'm trying to explain it to 18 year olds. And it, it's really fascinating to, to go through that process because it's something we should all be going through, but it takes a lot of work, right? And, and so, you know, when I start thinking about this and start teaching about this, I go all the way back to Genesis one, which is a good place for us all to start of you know, whatever we're doing. I've heard somebody say that we can, you know, basically if, you know, the, the first about, 12 chapters or so of Genesis the you know, is where the whole Bible is. The rest of it is just explaining it all after that. And so it's a good place to start. So we, we start with the what's known as the creation covenant or the Adamic covenant or the dominion covenant, where God says that, that he created us, he created us in his image. And then he tells us to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion over all living things. And so God gave human beings a task at the beginning of all creation to go and do these things. And why did he do that? Well, because God was with man in the garden 
But the rest of the, and he had planted that, but the rest of the world wasn't planted and cultivated. And so it was man's task to go out and make the rest of the world look like the garden so that the entire earth could be a dwelling place for God with man, right? And we're going from a garden to a garden city, right? Because we have to build things and we have to, because, you know, you fill the earth with billions of people, they're not all going to fit, you know, you can't just put them out in little patches of ground. You need to build a city around that. And so that that's the, the progression of history. And that's where we're heading on this world is to f- have man prepare the earth to be a living place for, for God and man, dwelling place for God and man. So, but of course, some little problem got in the way there, and that would be sin, right? And so we, we go and we, we introduce that, and all of a sudden, the, the, the job doesn't change, but it gets a lot harder, and the character of it looks a little bit differently. And, and so we then, so the whole world is destroyed and by the flood, and then, uh, then Noah comes back out, and he's told us to do basically the same thing, mm-hmm. right? You get to that. And then life goes on, and I won't get into all the details, but then Jesus comes, right? And Jesus has to come because we utterly failed in our task. You know, Adam and Eve rebelled against God, went to went over to the side of Satan and effectively made Satan the ruler of the world in, in many ways, although, of course, God is sovereign and always ruler over everything. And so Jesus Christ had to come and pay the price for that to restore creation to its to the right place and he did that on the cross and then he died and he was resurrected and then he ascended and where did jesus go when he ascended right he went to heaven you know we have a nice picture of that in acts going up and then if you go back to daniel no daniel you have a nice picture of looking at that same thing from heaven right Mm -hmm. jesus goes up from here and he comes up through the clouds and you see him getting there in clouds and where does he go he goes to the right hand of god and he's sitting and what's he sitting on a throne and what's he doing on a throne he's ruling right Mm -hmm. and in fact jesus affirms that when he goes up and talks to the disciples and says uh, all authority has been given to me and and then he tells us what we're supposed to do now this is the church is getting this not you know, is getting this message, but it's the same message. We're supposed to make disciples. And it's not disciples of individuals. It's disciples of the nations. And what are we supposed to teach the nations to do? To obey all that I have commanded you, right? And so when that that's basically my view of things that, that government is just as much subject to God as anything else. And not just in a general way, but specifically governors, you know, people, rulers, kings, governors, presidents, whoever they are, uh, policemen, they need to obey God just like Christians do. And they're responsible for that. And of course, if they don't do that, there's a place for them to go, just like there would be for us if we didn't do that, except for the grace of Christ. Right. And so a lot of Christians today, particularly from the dispensational camp, which none of us are here, and I, I'm grateful for that. But, you know, although we would have a nice conversation with a dispensationalist too. But uh, a- anyway, that that they, they kind of separate these two things. It's like they can barely even touch. But I, I think as Christians, we're, we're in this process of redeeming. God, Christ is in this process of redeeming the world. And he's, by the grace of God, he's using us to make that happen. And so we as a church and individuals, there's different responsibilities there. Are, are compelled to go and and make the culture look like heaven, right? Which makes sense because if the culture is just a bunch of people, and if um, 
people becomes Christians, then the culture is going to start like it's going to start to look like heaven. So that, that's basically my my take on all that. I uh, I think one point that you make that I think is always good to remind everyone in is we hear this conversation and we. Uh, almost hear it as how is the church and individual Christians supposed to interact with a democratically elected republic? Because the reality is that we live in that and America has been that for a long enough period of time where it's almost ingrained in the uh, mindset of a Western American citizen, right? But this should be a conversation that is relevant regardless of the government under which you live, Mm -hmm. right? Because government is instituted by God around the world. And all of them, we would agree, are very different. So thank you, Bill. Joel, why don't you kind of give your perspective? I know you and Bill agree on a lot, um, but kind of give us your thoughts. Yeah. So there's nothing that you said that I would disagree with so far. So we'll see if we can uh, if we can get out of each other's throats later on. We'll let's <laughs> okay. try to find something. But um, so at the risk of oversimplifying, um, I, you know, I'll just, I'll just kind of give the 30,000 foot view, but, uh, I'm Reformed Baptist. I would adhere to the 1689. I would take no exceptions. Um, so I would hold to the Sabbath. I'm Sabbatarian, the Christian Sabbath. We believe that, uh, Christ, who is Lord of the Sabbath, has authority over the Sabbath, that he, um, that he fulfilled the Sabbath, but he did not abrogate it. He did not re- uh, remove the Sabbath, but rather renew the Sabbath from the last day of the week to the first day of the week. Um, that we're not living, um, you know, working and then being rewarded with rest on the last day of the week, but we're actually in this gospel covenant and this new covenant. We're actually um, beginning our week in the rest of the Lord and then living out of that. Um, I would hold to the Pope being an antichrist, maybe not the antichrist, but an antichrist, as the 1689 says. Um, I think he is a denier of the gospel. So the whole nine yards with the 1689 um, beyond that. The 1689 uh, doesn't cover everything. It's thorough, um, but it doesn't cover eschatology, um, not in in depth. And so you could be all mill and be 1689. You could be pre-mill. You could be post-mill. So I would be post-millennial in my eschatology. I would be theonomic in my view of Christians and um, and government and um, and the requirements that God has for them. So to kind of bring that down into practical um, things, I you know. It has been said, uh, Christ, not Caesar, is head of the church, right? So John MacArthur made that statement, um, and and he, you know, got a lot of flack and he got a lot of support, you know, in California, pushing back against the mandates and the lockdowns and those kinds of things from Gavin Newsom. Um, but he said, Christ, not Caesar, is head of the church. And I would say yes and amen a thousand times. And then I would want to also say, and Christ, not Caesar, is head of also the state. Um, that Caesar is God's deacon. Romans 13 says that Caesar is a servant of God. So in the same way, we need to understand, number one, we have multiple governments, right? So this is not so much getting to kingdoms. We'll get into that in a moment. Two kingdoms. Um, I, I would adhere to two kingdoms, although I would not say that I'm a, a two kingdom theologian, certainly would reject um, a radical two kingdom view. Guys like Mike Horton, um, guys like Van Druden. I come from San Diego. I pastored there for several years. And so it's right, right beneath Westminster Escondido, which is kind of like the, the, the mothership of the radical two kingdom view. Um, I would hold to two kingdoms, but the question is, uh, what's the distinction? Is it state and church? Is it uh, sacred and secular? Or is it light and dark? And so I would say we have a kingdom of light and dark. Uh, we have darkness within even uh, the church Why? because false teachers will arise from among you. Uh, because we have Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10, we have apostate texts. Um, we have Matthew 7, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, you know, we prophesied in your name. Well, I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. So there, there is a sense of darkness within the realm of the church. And there's a sense of light within the realm of the civil magistrate. 
um, that you can be a Christian, a deacon of, of God who is serving faithfully in that vocation. I think Paul addresses these things in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he says, remain in the station of life that the Lord called you. So what, what does the Philippian jailer do when he gets saved? Is the first imperative of the gospel that he quits his job and stops being a part of the civil magistrate? Or is there a Christianly way to be a part of the civil magistrate? So all those things being said, I would say there are two kingdoms. It's not secular sacred. It's not state and church. Um, it's light and dark. And then to use another phrase, not kingdoms, but we do have multiple spheres. And these sovereign spheres are governments. And I would say that there are four um, and they're all instituted by God. There's the government of the self, the familial government, the government of the home, the government of the church, ecclesiastical government, and then we have the civil government. And God has, has appointed leaders in each of these governments. And it's not a hierarchy. It's not the state and then the church and then the family and then the self. Um, but rather, these are all alongside one another. Like a Venn diagram, there are times where there is overlap. And these governments, just like in our civil government, we have three branches that hold and checks and balances. Uh, likewise, God has set up his world in human society to lend towards his glory and the flourishing of his image-bearing creatures in such a way that all these governments hold one another in check. Um, and, and what we have currently, um, Glenn Sunshine wrote a book about this, you know, a slain Leviathan. Uh, the government is unique, especially here in America, but really in, in every culture, the civil government is unique in the sense that anytime one of these other governments, the government of the church, the government of the family, government of the self, anytime they're willing to abdicate certain responsibilities, the government, civil government is all too happy. To, to pick up the slack. And so what we have, I think, in America in many ways is that the family has failed, uh, the church has failed, and, and then we have this bloated civil government that's, that's really encroached and picked up the slack and all these kinds of things. And, uh, and so what we need to do, I think, as Christians is, uh, we, we need, we have a civil duty as citizens of, of a democracy, not simply subjects of a monarchy. We have a, a duty there, but we also have a duty within our, our homes, within the familial government and in our churches. Um, to to call the civil government to obedience to Christ Jesus. There's a prophetic role where the church, you know, John the Baptist says to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Um, Herod was not a Jew. He was not a Christian. He The Ten Commandments weren't given to Christians. They were given to people to human beings, and they are binding on all people in all places throughout all times. And the church has a prophetic role to, to point to kings and kingdoms and say, the Lord Jesus is the king of kings, and he commands that all people in all places believe the gospel and repent and obey his law. And um, we need to do that. Thank you, Joel. Brian? Why don't you help kick us off here? I've been waiting this whole time to make it that the flip, first thing the Philippian jailer did was he baptized his babies. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, we were going to get that. Let me, that let me say this. 60 so, minutes. Let me say this. So that's a great example for the listener of eisegesis because what Brian just did there is assume that he had babies. There yeah. you go. Why, why would he not? So uh, do you have a baby right now? Uh, no. Oh, no. There we go. Okay. Right, there go you should though. So, uh, <laughs> you know, when, so uh, I'm interested actually. So most people, when they hear Lutheran, kind of politics. They think of two kingdoms. Uh, that's what comes out of the sort of overview of the Reformation study that Luther taught, for example, uh, that give to God what's God's, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. That kind of develops the two kingdom uh, doctrine. It's not that often in Luther. Mm -hmm. So he'll mention it every now and again. But it's mostly the way that Luther talks about it is two swords. 
So it's not really two kingdoms, it's two authorities. And the two swords are, on the one hand, you have the temporal authority, which is the authority to wage war, to um, enact justice, the sword that belongs to Caesar, Romans 13, and then the sword of the scripture, the sword of God's word, the wisdom of heaven, the sword of the spirit. And that's a very different authority. The authority uh, that, uh, for example, a king would have versus the authority that a preacher would have. And those two swords are then wielded, in fact, in three different places. So when Luther talks about the way this works out in sort of uh, the, the life of the world and governments, he speaks of the three estates. Close to the idea of the spheres, but the three spheres are the family and the church and the state. And Luther would recognize, and this is oversimplification again, but that the two of those governments or, or spheres or estates is the common language, the three states, are uh, instituted by God in the garden, the family and the church, where Adam and Eve were to have children, uh, to have the family there. They were to worship God and believe his promises. And then the third estate of the state comes after the fall. And, and that's when uh, sin is unleashed and has to be ruled in. So the goals of the three estates are, number one, the family to bring about life. Number two, the church to bring about life eternal in the worship of God. And number three, the state, which is to bring about little deaths to prevent everything dying. So that, that authority of the sword that Caesar is to wield it brings it no matter where the government, and, and this is important, no matter where the government acts, they bring about death. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of the first thing. But they are to bring about as little death as possible. That's the point. So why do you wage war? To bring an end to uh, the violent uh, invaders that are coming against us so that we're not all dead. So why do you lock someone up or execute a criminal? You bring a little death to prevent a spreading of death. Mm-hmm. So Luther used the, the picture of, uh, of a surgeon who has to cut off a gangrenous finger or limb or something like that. You, you, the, the, the finger with gangrene does not appreciate the sword, <laughs> the knife, but the rest of the body does mm-hmm. because that, the cutting off of, of the little bit of death prevents death from coming to everything. So, so the government is the last and the least of all the estates. It has the ugliest role, uh, and, and therefore it ought to be limited. We understand that. Uh, and it is in service to the family and the church. And what happens, I, so I agree, Joel, with what you're talking about. The, the, the government always has something like a Napoleon complex. It, it mm-hmm. always, it, it, it feels bad that it is the least of the estates and the least important. And so it wants to become the most important. And it's one of the temptations, I think, for Christians and I mean, for this and for the people listening, that the government takes up more space in our mind and our imagination and our thinking than it should. Mm-hmm. Because in fact, if things are good at home and things are good at church, then things can fall apart in the government and life is still going to be okay. But if things are bad in the church and things are bad at home, then your whole life is right. Those are the things that matter. But we do have this assumption that it's part of the problem of our secular society is that we can't assume that a person is in a family. We only can assume the individual and we can't assume that a person is in the church. And so the government becomes, and this is very unfortunate. It becomes the universal estate. 
so that it has to become the, it, it sucks up everything that's dropped everywhere else. And that's a dangerous spot for us to be in. So as we, as we grow our families, as we grow our, our homes, as we grow our churches and the influence that they have, then we're actually better equipped to engage in, in governmental city politics. Uh, I think from a healthy spot. So Mm -hmm. I think that's a quick overview. Lutheran. Yeah. Any thoughts, Bill, just in general to kind of Brian's presentation or as you hear that, are there areas of disagreement or divergence in general with how you feel like your kind of dominion oriented perspective comes? Yeah, I, I don't think so. I think we all agree. So we, we probably stop right now. If you yeah. want to go, I mean, maybe even easier. Disagreement. Yeah. There you go, Joel. Well, yeah. go we'll go ahead. Well, I, I would just say that, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of similarity between all of us. And, yeah, and, sure. I, and, I, and I think we all agree with the fact that um, government occupies way too much of our minds, right? Whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, you know, inside of government, outside of government, it just, and and the reason for that is because government today in in the United States, I'd say even in Texas, has assuming the role of God, right? You know, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, and why, remember why Christians were killed by the Roman Empire is because they they refused to say Kaiser Curios, mm-hmm. you know, Caesar is Lord, because Jesus is Lord. And that's just as true today as it is then. But but you know, government today is trying to usurp Jesus's authority, not not just sphere authority from the other spheres, but Jesus's authority. And so, you know, it, it's because we have this all-encompassing God staring us in the face that we can see, you know, that's the temptation of, of mm-hmm. Christians and non-Christians alike to, to, to be drawn to worship that. And, and so, you know, fortunately we can repent of that as Christians and turn to the true Lord, but too often I think in society in general, and sometimes even the church, we, we see this inclination, desire and inclination to, to turn to the, and have the state be all-encompassing. So. I, I just want to piggyback on that. that and this is, I think, very important. And both of you guys mentioned this too, that so like the martyrs are there and they're being persecuted and, the, and they would always say things like, well, don't you know that I have the authority to, to burn you? Like, Pi- right. like Pilate to Jesus, Pilate. don't you know I have the authority? So I'm thinking of uh, like Perpet, no, uh, Agnes, St. Agnes. And don't you know that I have the authority to burn you? And she says to the Roman proconsul, you can burn me for a couple of hours, but the one who will judge you has a fire that doesn't go out. And so the idea that that there is a king of kings mm-hmm. and there is a lord of lords is is fundamental to everyone's thinking. And one of the dangers of a secular any sort of secular government is that it puts the whoever is at the top is at the top. There's no one above them. Right. And this is a danger with communism, for example, is that who stands above the party? There's no one to judge the judges. Mm-hmm. And if you lose that most basic thing, then the game is lost, but that's always the game. Mm-hmm. And so one of the great gifts that the church gives to the world is it reminds everyone who is Lord that they also have a Lord. Uh, e- everyone who is a boss has a boss. Right. Right. Joel. Yeah. So, no, I completely agree. Um, I like what you said at like little deaths to prevent massive death. And that's exactly what we see in Romans 13. You know, it's one of the most, you know, misinterpreted texts, especially over these last uh, two years with, with again, 
COVID restrictions and lockdowns and these kinds of things. It's like, well, submit to the civil magistrate, submit to, but really what Romans 13 is not, is not merely uh, instructions or exhortations to Christians and how they should behave with the civil magistrate, um, but it's also uh, containing explicitly instructions to the civil magistrate himself, um, telling him what he's allowed to do, what his purpose is, what his actions should be. And one of them is precisely what, what you said, that he bears the sword. And so when we talk about, so you said, you know, like two different kinds of authority. And, and I would acknowledge, I think that's there in terms of the authority of the church, authority of the state. But, but I would see more of an emphasis on, um, the distinction between methods than, than types of authority or forms of authority. I would see a distinction in methods. So in each of these three governments, speaking of, of the government of the home, church, and state, um, they've all been given tools, methods for carrying out, executing their authority. So to the home has been given the rod. Uh, to the church has been given, I would say, a sword of the spirit, but also I would focus on the keys of the kingdom and church discipline and the, and the ability to actually remove someone from the table um, for unrepentant sin. And so we have a rod given to uh, the, the familial government and those who lead that government, the father, uh, primarily as the head of that home. And then his uh, his wife is kind of like a, a viceroy, a a vice president, if you will, in the home um, as a helpmate, working with her husband to govern in love uh, the children. So you have a rod, you have the keys of the kingdom given to elders and deacons, and for me, being congregational, uh, to the church itself, right? The, in Matthew 18, and if he does not listen to the two or three, then tell it to the church. And the church functions as um, an ecclesiastical court, the highest earthly court of appeal. And if the church renders uh, the individual in question as guilty and the person still refuses to repent, he does not listen to the church, then the, the keys of the kingdom for binding and loosing on earth and will be bound and loosed in heaven are, are utilized. And that person, there is a, a, a eternal even consequence uh, that takes place. And then the government is the sword. And so, and it's supposed to be. So when, when I think of like the sword of the spirit and the keys of the kingdom, what we're doing in the preaching of the gospel, what we're doing in the church it's a ministry of persuasion. We're speaking to the hearts of, of men, like Peter addressing the crowds, and it says they were cut to the heart, but not literally. They were cut by this, by the Spirit, by the Spirit of God and the preaching. They were moved. They were compelled. They were changed. They were transformed from the inside out, whereas the government works from the outside in. The government is a ministry of of coercion. And, and that's not bad. It's supposed to, the government is given a sword and all it knows how to do is swing it, you know? So, so the government, that's what the government's going to do, right? It's like putting a bull in a China shop, you know, that the bull, the bull breaks things. That's, that's literally what its ministry is. Like the Bible, Isaiah and different Old Testament texts speak of civil governments in terms of beasts and bears and lions, right? So, which is why it's so, it's so funny. I'll, I'll say this. It's so funny when you have, for instance, when, when you have all of a sudden, um, uh, you have the government encroaching into a ministry of welfare and nurturing with children. What do they do? They, they destroy children. Like you want to, you want to let uh, a lion babysit your kids, right? Beasts, uh, don't, shouldn't have a ministry. Sword carrying, claw bearing beast aren't, you wouldn't think, Hey, that's, that's a great sphere to assign childcare to. Right. Um, and likewise, with with a woman in the home, a mother who is nurturing and warm, you want to say, hey, you know what we should really do? We should get her to rule the free, the known free world and be in charge of declaring war and things like that. So, you know, so you, it's and it's so funny. That's precisely what we see right now. We see women in in position like Kentaji, uh, you know, Brown Jackson, um, you know, you, you see 
she's soft on child predators. I'm just going to be real frank for a moment. Soft on child predators. Why? Because she's a woman. She's nurturing. That's her ministry. So she's soft on a child predator. And then, and then you have the government giving them children and state schools. And, and then we're shocked when they come out mangled and bloodied and marred, right? So you're giving the civil magistrate that bears a sword, um, roles of nurturing children. And then you're giving a, a, a motherly, um, maternal nurturing type person a position on the highest court in the land. Um, and, and her first inclination with, with a pedophile is, I wonder if he had a good mom. Like with Putin, how many women, if I was your mother, writing those kinds of poetry, they cannot help, no matter how liberal they are, God has created us in a certain way to, to function within his parameters. And so my whole point is to say, I, I don't see it as so much an emphasis. There is a distinction, but I wouldn't put the emphasis on the distinction between types of authority between the church and the state. Can, uh, but, but and Joel, I just want to push on that just methods. a little bit. I want to understand what the distinction is, because I, I feel like you've explained a lot of that, but what is the distinction in, in your mind? I think methods. So keys of the kingdom and a physical sword. The church has a ministry of persuading, changing people from the inside out, transforming the heart, whereas, whereas the state has a ministry of coercion. So that gets into the three uses, not just the three divisions of the law, but the three uses of the law. The first use of the law is, is law never is saving. No man will be saved by works as done unto the law. But the law does reveal to us our need for a savior. It reflects the holiness of God by way of consequence, our sinfulness and the gap in between a holy God and sinful man, our need for a savior. That's the first use. The third use is a use for Christians, uh, not the road to salvation, but the road from salvation, right? Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. And so, so David says, I delight in the law of God. It's a lamp unto my feet. So the law is a, a guide. It's a compass. It's a lamp. And it doesn't show us how to go to be saved, but it shows us where to go from salvation. But that second use is what you're talking about, that the law functions as a shield. It has a, I would argue from like a Kyperian persuasion, um, it has a common grace function, not just for Christians, but for both believers and unbelievers alike. In the second use of the law, it functions as a shield that restrains evil. So by little deaths, it, 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 it staves off big deaths. Um, and so it actually has, a, and, and that actually works in tandem, hand in glove with the church's ministry of preaching the gospel, right? Because we always say, you know, the blood of the martyrs is the seedbed of the church. But the church was pretty glad under Constantine too. Um, you know, like the, the, the church explodes under persecution, but it also explodes in times of peace when the gospel minister is free to do his job because farmers are farming and, and the government is holding off war. Joel, can so, I just, I, yeah. and I want to just get down, give me a, a shorter answer to this question. Then I want to go to Brian on this as well. And then I have another question for everyone to answer, but I want to better under, so I, I feel like you've d talked about this distinction almost within the disciplinary roles. You talked about the keys of the kingdom, um, you know, the, the sword, sword specific, keys. and then, and then the rod for the family. Are there other distinctions outside of discipline within those either kingdoms or spheres in your mind? So or, I would not or, call yeah, them kingdoms. So I, I yeah, would say yeah. Even kingdoms if we say is spheres, light and dark. Yep. Two kingdoms, light and dark, one king. Okay, so let's just say spheres. Mm -hmm. We have a distinction within kind of the discipline specific. Yes, the, 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 are the there distinction. other 
Are there other areas where there's distinction between how they then function? Yes, it's the it's um, and, it's how they function and what they're called to do. It's the responsibilities and the tools that God has assigned to them in order to carry out those responsibilities. So I would say to the family has given um, a ministry of training. Education is given to the fa- uh, family. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, but train them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So the state needs to get out of education. I would say I, I think state schools, public schools are uh, unbiblical. So I would say to, uh, education has been given to the household, um, not just education, but also welfare, um, the, the physical well-being of the church. So that's clothing, that's food, that's shelter. That's also medical freedom and choice. Uh, that doesn't mean every father has to be um, a medical um, expert, that he himself needs to be a physician, a doctor. Uh, but he does have the final say on which doctor the children go to. Um, of what, what vaccine is going to be injected into their body. Um, medical freedom that belongs to families, fathers in the home get to make that decision. Um, and then over here with the state, it's like, well, what is the state's, uh, I already talked about the tools. It's, it's sword, keys, and rod. Uh, but in terms of, uh, not, not the how, that's the how, but the what, the state's what is uh, to punish those who do evil and to a lesser extent, but there is a function of rewarding those who do righteous. So the state why why do you say lesser extent? Well, because I think I think what gets the lion's share of emphasis in Romans 13 and other other texts is is the sword carrying out justice that is proportional. Um so it needs to be proportional eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. So it needs to be pr- proportional. It needs to also be um blind, impartial. Um so so when when we hear a news story that a police officer shot um, uh, somebody, if, if we have to find out their skin pigment before determining what justice is, then we're not doing justice. That's Lady Justice taking off her blindfold. So it, it's proportional, it's impartial, uh, but justice is also what you got at. It's swift. When, when justice is delayed, the scripture says that all, that, 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 that evil rises. People think that they can get away with evil, right? So we always say, well, you know, my point is it's both. People say we're never going to yeah. um, outlaw abortion by by legislation. It's got to be heart transformation. What I would say is, well, there's 16,000 homicides each year and, and about 900,000 abortions. So it appears that people gravitate towards whatever form of murder is legal. Legality, legislation and enforcing by the state with the sword actually does kind of influence how much evil takes place in what way. And I, yeah, and I appreciate that. I am, uh, Brian, why don't you kind of give some thoughts on some of the things yeah. Joel has been saying so, and some distinctions if, if yeah, I'm sure, sure you've A couple of things. I mean, interesting that the, the ordering of the uses of the law is different. So we oh, would say the civil t- use is the first and the okay. mirror use the, is the second use, the okay. chief use to expose sin. That's, I wonder where that, uh, I wonder where that, uh, list diverged. But, but here, here's something that I think you'll like and also disagree with. Uh, Luther in the large catechism says that all authority comes from the office of father. Mm-hmm. So Adam had all authority at the beginning, the authority of all three estates, the family and the church and the government. And so far as it was there and that it, uh, it, it still is that way. So I, I wouldn't make a distinction between, I, I wouldn't, the, the family is unique in this way. And I think the rod might be a, a helpful picture, but I would say that in the family, both the sword of the spirit and the temporal authority converge. So mom and dad, as they govern their home, have uh, spiritual authority to teach the word of God, to bless their children with biblical wisdom, to forgive their sins, but also to, to uh, send them to their rooms. Right. The church does not have 
a prison in the basement. So if someone teaches false doctrine, you lock someone up. That belongs to the state. So that's that sort of the state and the and the work of um, uh, that you were talking about. There's no coercion in the church. It's a it's a matter of um, you're, persuading. you're persuading the heart. You're speaking to the heart. So, but those both of those come together in the home, and and to determine as a as a parent, especially as a father, if if now is time for mercy or now is time for um, severity, this is one of the, this is why being a, a parent is the most difficult of all vocations. Cause you have, you have both swords, your hands are full. Uh, whereas the state has only the sword of, of coercion and the church has only the sword of the word of God. Um, so I, I think that might be one difference is that they do find a unity I, I, I think you would agree with me too that they all find a unity in Christ. That Christ has all authority here, mm-hmm. but they don't. They don't only find a unity in their telos, but also in in the gift that's given as well. Mm-hmm. So while we recognize the uniqueness of it, uh, the the way that authority is exercised in these three domains, there is a um, there's a unity in the authority. And what that means is that you can delegate authority. So when Luther talks about the state, he says, why do we have a state? Well, it's because all the families in a place, they, they look at what they need. For example, they need to protect themselves from the hordes invading. They say, well, I can't do that as a, as a home. Mm-hmm. I can't do it. So we're all our homes are going to get together and we're going to have a king who can have an army who can do it. Right. Or whatever, public works. I, we, I can't build a, 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 a street in front of my house or whatever, so we're going to have a state that can do it. There, I think there's a place then for the families to get together and say, uh, I, I don't have enough, I can't teach my kids chemistry or whatever. So I'm going to find someone who can teach chemistry and do that. And it's, it's probably not the state's rule. But the, I, I do think th- I would, there, there might the record, be. A I would agree with that in the same way that a father can outsource a, a medical physician. He can outsource an educator. Right. But, it, but it must be the father is required to give to his children a distinctly Christian education. Yeah, right. So if he outsources an educator, um, it needs to be uh, not a Christian in education, right? Because people are always going to say public schools are bad, but not our public school. We've got a bunch of Christians in our public school, but there's difference in Christians in education and a distinctly Christian education from right. a Christian world. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, Ab- no, absolutely. So, so I'm agreeing with yeah. you. You could outsource those things, but the father yeah. gets the say. Right. The, the, the authority uh, and, and whoever it is, the father is uh, giving that authority to, they are now serving the home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one of the great tragedies of our own day is that the state has forgotten that it's in service to the home and in service to the church. Uh, I, I don't know how, and I don't know if it can be reminded. It's a, just a curious question for me. Yeah. So one question I have is, we you talked about Romans 13, uh, Joel, which I think is super helpful because it is where we do derive a lot of our understanding of the world today, government, individual, Christian, uh, Christians in the church, and then a Christian just as a member of the body of Christ. So are all governments created for the good of man? Um, you know, again, I started this by talking about how the fact when we talk about government, we're thinking of the American government, which most people would argue allows for a lot more freedom than most everyone else in the rest of the world experiences. Right. So are all governments, regardless of where you are in the world as a Christian, created for the good of man or only some governments created for the good of man? Bill, why don't you let us sure. know? I, I thought Brian 
touched on this just a minute ago when you were talking about how governments need to be reminded of their of their role and their task and things like that. And because they have forgotten those things, that they're God's servants for our good. You know, Romans talks about that. They specifically says governors are God's servants. They are carrying out God's wrath. Right. And, and so that's gone sadly missing from most theories and contract of government today. And uh, I think really where that went wrong was John Locke. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, uh, up until, you know, we like beginning with, well, Augustine really, but then little Thomas Aquinas, but then Luther and then Calvin and the whole Protestant Reformation, you started to develop this, what is known today as Protestant resistance theory, right? right? And because Christians, these godly Christian men and women had this problem, right? They read Romans 13 and say, we're subject, we need to be subject to the the government. But then the government was trying to kill them, right? You know, the, the, the government was working with the Catholic Church to try and kill them. And they say, okay, do we just sit here and die? Or which is one response, depending on what goes on, or do we do something about that? And so they developed, you know, the covenant theology. And it re- really, you know, Calvin kind of got this, well, Luther got it going. And then Calvin built on that with with the, the concept of that government is a, con- a covenant in a covenant relationship with the people. And matter of fact, government springs from the consent of the people because that, that goes back to Exodus where, you know, uh, Moses asked the people three times right. if they would consent to the government that, that God was putting on them. We will do all that. <laughs> yeah. And, and they said, yes. And so he said, well, governments build on the consent of people. Now, the authority is God's. You know, it's not the people's authority. Ultimately, it's God's, but it's from that. And so that's a where you start with government. And then you look at why you have Bill, this. I just I want to ask a quick question because I'm going to I'm going to. One question is, when is it okay for a Christian to disobey the government, right? So we understand that there's a difference in, like, there is a limit, if that makes sense. But I also want to just kind of think about, again, all sorts of governments. Do you think all governments are created when, when, when it says there is no authority except from God, right? That tends to imply that includes the authority at, in North Korea. Does that include the authority in Russia? Does that include the authority in Brazil? Does that include the authority in Mexico? So all authorities, I just want to kind of hone in on that, you know, in today's world, what do you think? And and so, and that's where Locke came and messed things up because, uh, you know, Locke and and Hobbes before him uh, both said that government, people give up some of their rights in order to enter in this contract to have themselves protected. But but that's totally got it backwards, right? Government is here to protect all our rights, right? We don't give anything up by getting because you know nobody has a right to kill us, right? So we're not we're not giving up any rights to be protected. We join into governments like you were talking to, have this consent to join into governments to be have all of our rights protected. We don't have to give up any, but but Locke reversed what we saw in Protestant Reformation and the Protestant Reformation mm-hmm. and, the, and the resistance theory from that and, and had this concept that, well, we have to give up something to get what God has given us in the first place. And I, I think that's and that that is true, whether you're talking about the United States of America or, you know, monarchies or dictatorships like you have in North Korea. 
So is that a yes or a no? Because that's what I'm trying to understand. Are all governments created by God for the good of man? Yes, in, including North Korea. Okay. Joel? Uh, so I, I would say yes and no. So all forms of government are instituted by God. The four forms mean the self, the home, the church, the state, all four forms. If we're talking about individual specific mm -hmm. governments in, in the state sphere, in that category, North Korea's civil government, America's civil government. Well, I would say as a Calvinist, I believe that God is not, not just sovereign over salvation, but I believe in the meticulous sovereignty of God, R.C. Sproul, not one maverick un, uh, molecule in the universe. So yeah, nothing happens by coincidence. Um, these things have been ordained by God. And so in that sense, um, evil, tyrannical, authoritarian, wicked governments like North Korea's government that preys upon the people instead of protecting and serving them, I would say is instituted by God, not its form. It's not prescribed by God, like God saying, this is how you should do it. This is good. Uh, but it is still ordained by God within his, not his prescriptive will or his moral revealed will in scripture, but, but under the banner of his sovereign will. Um, his hidden will, God ordains even sin and suffering. God ordained the death of Jesus um, to bring about the salvation of the world. And so I say it's ordained by God. And because it's ordained by God, I would cross-reference from from Romans 13, that, that it's been instituted by God. And then I would reference over to the classic passage in Romans chapter 8 that says that God is working all things. And I don't think that's salvaging. I think God is working. That That is, he is, he is orchestrating all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So I would say for the, for the reprobate, for the person who is not a Christian, and for the person, God forbid, who will never become a Christian, um, I don't believe that North Korea's government is for their good. I think it will make them miserable in this life as they head to misery in the next. Um, but what Romans 8 says clearly is that God is working all things for the good, not just of all people, but those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So I would say good government, when government is functioning in line with what God has prescribed, not just what he's instituted, but what he's commanded in Romans 13, when government is doing that, all the people rejoice. Pagans and Christians alike, the unbeliever and the believer, they all flourish. They all benefit from righteous government. With wicked government that God does not prescribe, but he does at times ordain, even under wicked regimes, the church flourishes. It lends towards the eternal well-being of the people of God, those who love him, but, but it does not necessarily help those who don't. Who don't. No, I think that is a good distinction in the idea that if, one, if you are a Christian, in an oppressive state. And there are some people in California that would mm -hmm. uh, feel just as oppressed as some people in other nations with a more oppressive government. But the reality is that in that moment in time, again, these scriptures as they're, they're read and they're understood by people in the church, the reality is that your primary job as a Christian at that moment in time would not be, how do I make this government like that other government that I would rather be at that moment in time, realizing that God is working all of these things together. And it's not to say that there might be a vocational calling to engage in the government process and all these things, but knowing that the state that this is placing even unbelievers in makes the church often grow, right? And we see that in all these countries that uh, have an oppressive government, that sphere in particular might even be acting outside of its authority and in every single lane. And yet, more people are coming to know God through Christ. And so that, I think that's an important distinction to understanding. Brian, do you have any 
additional thoughts on kind of that just are all governments created for the yeah. good man yeah that, thank you I, i'd say so it's to, to make a parallel like god gives all children their father and their mother to bless them mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that every father and mother is good for the children honor your father and mother still stands it, it in fact means that if i look at why am i a father it's to give glory to god and to bless my children it's not for my own sake mm-hmm. so because the lord gives authority to all the governments um he does that for the purpose of them blessing the people and that then becomes a rebuke to those who do not who curse the people afflict the people and so, so has god give given authority say to the communist party in china we'd say well yeah he's done that so that they could bless the people and they have taken that authority and misused it mm-hmm. and the misuse of the authority that god gives is often the worst damage you know if if a if a parent misuses the authority that god has given and for example discipline in the children it's much it's can you imagine like if some stranger walks up and punches me in the face that's one thing but if my dad walks up and punches me in the face it's an entirely different thing mm-hmm. it's it it hurts worse even though it doesn't hurt as bad it hurts worse because it's a misuse of authority so yeah god has given the government and that should in some ways put um the fear of the lord into all those who have an office in any estate is that the Lord has given me this office not for myself, not for my own ends, but to bless the people that the Lord has given me to serve. Th- th- maybe one other thing, so the basic Christian um posture is one of submission and obedience. And this is hard, but it's plain in the scripture. So so in Romans 13, but Peter says, be subject to every human authority, to the emperor, to governors, as to the Lord. And so the Christian has a basic posture of submission or obedience to the authority under which we find ourselves and to act against that authority it, it, there's times when it's necessary but it's always the exception to the rule so the rule is honor your father and your mother if our father and mother make themselves unhonorable by commanding us to disobey god then we have to break the command the fourth commandment to keep the first commandment but uh the the basic position of the christian is one of obedience and living under the order in which god has placed us and that's hard especially for me and i imagine it's hard especially mm-hmm. for you guys and i imagine it's probably especially hard for those who are listening or watching yeah. i mean we have this natural re- rebellion against the authority over us and the scriptures are always coming at us uh with that word submit or under hupotasso be, be under the order be hupakuo be under the hearing of those that are over you joel bill i'll let you come in bill sure. here in just a second but i i think that is a it's it's a good segue into that conversation about when it is okay to disobey but i'd like you and joel to also address in the question of when is it okay for a christian to disobey the government in a sense to also talk about that general posture, because I think what Brian has presented there is um, a good perspective and potentially something maybe we agree or disagree on, because uh, that idea that is, is it the exception to the rule? Because you could, there's somebody who could argue, well, if you look at all the governments, we're pretty much in a time where we always have to be constantly disobeying the government for one reason or another. And so is that still today where Christians in America and other places can have a should they be having this general default idea of I, I am under and subject to the governing authority except for these instances or 
Um, and Bill, I'll start with you too, because you and I operate in the world of politics, right? So we're constantly raving against the tyrants, uh, whether they be at the Texas Capitol or Austin City Hall or the federal government. And so I would love to hear kind of your synopsis with some of the things uh, yeah. Brian said, and also on that form of disobedience. Well, I, I don't see how we can start with anything else but the posture of submission and obedience, right? I mean, you know, it, it makes it makes it very clear in Scripture that that's where we have to begin with. But there's also plenty of examples in Scripture of disobedience. You, you talked about some uh, Jesus. Right. Talks about that. I mean, he goes in and disrupts the, you know, the authorities in Jerusalem. You know, you know we have church and state going on in Jerusalem, all blended together with the, the ruling council. They're both priests and they're the rulers from a civil perspective. And they had, they're the ones who had authorized all this, uh, you know, money changing, which was robbing the people and, and the selling of all the sacrificial animals in the, inside the, the, the outer part of the temple. Right. And he goes in there and just tears it apart, right? Well, he, he's disobeying the civil authorities there. And so there's clearly, you know, limits to how much we have to, to obey those folks. And, and, and it comes, the easy one is like, if God tells you, you know, if the government tells you to do something that God says you can't do, don't do that. Mm-hmm. And if, if they, uh, you know, on the other side, if they're telling you, don't do something and God tells you to do it. So you got both of those kind of things. But then there's also the thing, what if the government is disobeying God? Where, where do you go then? It may or may not be affecting you, but but what do you do with that? For instance, um, our government today, the United States and Texas is saying it's OK to kill your children. Right. What are we supposed to do with that? Well, that's where this this idea of the doctrine of the lesser magistrates particularly yes. steps in, where uh, which comes straight out of the the Protestant Reformation. Luther was was you know reluctantly brought in to the the doctrine of lesser magistrates when when they were they were killing all the people there, and you know they ask him. Can we disobey? And he said, well, no. And they said, well, look, here's what the law says. Uh, we have authority as, as magistrates mm-hmm. in here and that the king is usurping from us, right? Or the emperor it was usurping. And he says, well, okay, from this legal analysis, it's okay for you in some places. Calvin keeps that up. And then Rutherford and Junius mm-hmm. Brutus and a lot of others come after that. And basically, they said, if... The government is doing these evil, oppressive things, then Christians, but not just Christians, but particularly Christians in office have the ability and the right to do that. And so, for instance, in Texas, the United States Supreme Court has told us it's we, you have to let people kill your babies. But if a, if a Christian like Greg Abbott is in office or uh, or maybe a sheriff or whatever is in office, then they ought to say, no, that's not right. Because in fact, the laws of Texas still make abortion illegal. We never repealed our law against abortion being illegal in Texas. And so you ought to have the authorities in Texas saying, to heck with you, U.S. Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not going to let you kill our children here in Texas. And, And I think individuals have some ability to disobey the government and should in certain instances. But Christian rulers in particular even have a greater responsibility for that. I think you make a great point, one, in the idea that um, 
it's not just individual Christian to the government, but even recognizing right. that within the government, there are different spheres and different levels of authority and a judge and a district attorney and a, and a governor. And then how would a Christian then act in that position of authority as somebody who is understanding their limitations and then also standing the authority that they've been instituted uh, by God? Joel, why don't you add yeah, to So I completely agree. So what you started with, Bill, is 100% right. And just to recap it for the listeners, it's the idea of any time the government forbids something that God commands or the government commands something that God forbids. Um, that's what Christians must resist. And then there are other instances that I would say that Christians may resist. So we must resist um, the civil magistrate when he clearly, when there are sharp abuses of his authority, where he's commanding you to do that which God forbids or forbidding you to do that which God commands. And we see both examples on both sides of the coin in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're commanded to do something, namely bow down to this golden statue, a false god, idol worship. And they say, we can't, uh, you know, God has forbidden us. So the civil magistrate is commanding them to do something that God has forbid. Um, in Daniel chapter six, with Daniel himself, you have the civil magistrate forbidding something that God commands. You sh shall not pray. Right, this thirty-day edict, right? Just thirty days to slow, slow the spread of prayer, you know. If, you know, and the, the government will let up if you just, you know, it's just temporary, right? And Daniel didn't fall for it, like ninety percent of evangelicals in our country did, yeah. right? So Daniel didn't shut his doors, but he left the windows open and he prayed. Um, and so, you know, Daniel was wise. And so those are instances where we must resist. In terms of may resist, I think I think the question is, again, Luke, you did a good job summarizing it, but it's um, this idea of we don't go rogue. We're not vigil antis, right? So so a Christian, if there's a mass murderer, a serial killer, you know, a modern day Jack the Ripper, um, a, an individual Christian um, can't hunt him down in the middle of the night while wearing a mask and a cape. Um, we, we, don't, we don't have that. Now, if he comes into my home, and is threatening my wife and children, I can subdue him and kill him. I'm not a pacifist, you know? And so I, so the, but the question again, it gets into spheres. It gets into lanes. If he comes into the home, I have authority in my home. I'm king of the castle. I can shoot him in the face, you know? And, and if, you know, and so that because I, I am a master, I am in authority in my home. Uh, likewise though, if it's not in my home, but it's in the civil realm, right? It's, it's not shutting down my church. That's one of the things you also see with the, you know, you see throughout history, you see showdowns between the church and the state where, where the church was, um, people would run to the church into big cathedrals and declare sanctuary, sanctuary, you know, like the hunchback of Notre Dame, you know, and the priest would stand up. You see it even in Disney cartoons, believe it or not, right? Where Friar Tuck or whoever it is in, in the old Robin Hood where he's a fox, it's animated, and the sheriff comes in to try to tax the people, and, and the friar says, get out of my church. Mm -hmm. And he physically pushes him out of the church because he has authority in that sphere, in that domain. Now, if it's not in the home and it's not in the church and it's in the civil magistrate in that lane, Christians can still uh, resist, but they must do so orderly. So what I would say is you find a Christian lesser magistrate, you find a Christian mayor, a Christian governor, Christian city council members, and you organize, right? Because we're not chaotic. They, they, they accuse Paul of being one who stirs up riots. That was slander. He is not a rioter. Um, it was the people that they were the ones causing the riot. The minister of the gospel, he's not a rioter. We're not riotous. We're not racketeers. We're, we're, we are orderly because we have a God of order, not chaos, but, but, um, order. And, and so we would formally, um, organize in the proper sphere under a Christian civil magistrate, a lesser magistrate and push back. This, Brian, this last... points to the importance, by the way, of training 
Christians, especially the children, to enter into governmental office. Yes. And yes. to encourage that. Because there because there's a distaste for any of the involvement of it. It seems too messy. Mm -hmm. It's like the old monastic thing. I, you know, I got to remove myself from the world because it's just too sinful out there. But w w Christians have to be engaged in in political office and we have to be training uh, people for that. Um, I want to get to I want I want to transition into more conversations about kind of the individual Christian. And what I mean by that is we've had a lot of conversations about the church and the state, but for listeners who are going to Baptist churches, Lutheran churches, Presbyterian churches, and everything in between, um, our brothers and sisters out there, as they kind of consider, one of the questions that came to mind, and this is certain things that I appreciate about just two kingdom doctrine in general, uh, is the idea that there is a difference, but you should experience something different when you attend a political rally, uh, than when you attend, uh, Sunday service, right? And so, and I, this came out of episode 157, where I talked about these conversations with all of these de-churched individuals who would profess faith and could say they read their Bible and they love theology and they have all these opinions. And some of them would line up and say things very similar to us. And then they're, you know, not going to church because they're tired of that. They want, and I've even had people, you know, come to our church and say, I want someone who's willing to stand up and talk about all of these social political issues from the pulpit on the regular. Right. And, and it, that what I sometimes hear in that is like, I think you're walking into church saying, I need you to tell me the same things than if I walk down to the local Republican club. And there is an actual distinction. There's a difference. And, and so my question to, to y'all in general is, what are those distinctions? This is when I think we get into some of that, or is there any distinction? Cause in, in my mind, again, when you talk about the authority that the church has to forgive sins, to institute the sacraments, to proclaim the gospel, um, it's not to say that no one can proclaim the gospel from uh, the you know platform of a political rally, but it's to say this is this this is a distinct instruction that's been given. So when you walk into church and these are the things you hear, that is a blessing and something that that church has been specifically instituted for, and then you have. Political. So again, they're not completely different. Can't not mention abortion or transgenderism or any of these issues from the pulpit. But sometimes I think we have some individuals who, who literally are wanting to just meld these two things together and have an almost equal experience. So do you think there's any potential danger there? What do you think the difference is? If I go to a political rally versus I go to Sunday and let's do a short answer, starting with Bill and coming to Brian. Well, in, in one sense, there, there really shouldn't be a difference between a political rally and a, and a worship service because we're all here to worship and honor and obey God. But there are different roles for government and um, in the church to do. But but within the church, we have to remember that uh, the, the church is here to help the individuals in the church go out and do what they're supposed to do. And what are they supposed to be doing? Well, they're supposed to be discipling the nations and teaching the nations, not just individuals, but nations mm -hmm. to 
obey all that Jesus has commanded. And so it's the role of the, the pastor and, you know, it, this is not my role. And so I'm, I'm stepping on some of your authority over here and I'd love to hear what y'all say about this. But I think it's the role of the pastor to, to speak to the people in a way that they can go out and help carry out this mission of the church generally, but also individuals in the church and for the, the pastor to speak prophetically into the culture yes. and, and tell Governor Abbott that we're glad you disagree with abortion as an individual, Governor Abbott, but you also need to speak up about that in your role as a governor of the state of Texas and protect our children, despite what the U.S. Supreme Court says. Mm-hmm. Joel. Yeah. So I, I think that um, the church should be committed in its Lord's Day gathering of the saints. It should be committed to the ordinary means of grace, administering the, the publicly preached word, publicly prayed, publicly saying, we're publicly singing the word and seeing the mm-hmm. word S-E-E-I-N-G. Um, in the only two images that the Lord has prescribed, which are the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and Baptism. And that should be the chief function of, of what the church does when we gather together. That would not be at a political rally. There should be no administering of the sacraments. Mm-hmm. Um, they haven't been given the authority. And likewise, even in the home, right? You can, uh, fathers will preach the gospel to their children, but they don't have the authority to baptize their own children or to administer the Lord's Supper. So there are some things that are uniquely given to the church that we do when the church churches, ecclesias, assembles uh, together. Now, within that, in our singing, I think we should sing um psalms hymns and spiritual songs and psalms address nations Mm -hmm. so my church we are singing uh the holy spirit inspired psalter um psalm 2 the lord you know that um that that the nations why do they rage you know and uh but the lord who sits in heaven he laughs he mocks and he holds them in in derision and uh he who rules uh the the nations with an iron scepter he will you know he will um uh, shatter the nations or you know we everybody becomes theonomic and post mill around christmas time i've noticed right he rules the world with it. like uh, christmas songs are triumphant hopeful post millennial songs and and so my my point is you disagree but but they are and and so all all I'm saying is that um, in administering the sacraments, even in that, there is a prophetic. It's it's that we we do this in remembrance, looking back, but it's also looking forward. You're proclaiming the Lord's death until until we come, and proclaiming to who? I, I would say to one another, but also to a fallen world, to nations. So in the Lord's Supper, there's a proclamation, a prophetic outflow. Certainly in the preaching of the word, good preaching is is revelation, interpretation, application. The revelation: I stand before the people of God. I don't say I have a dream, I have an idea, I have a church growth strategy. I say, I have a text. The revelation is God's expositional preaching. Then I need to properly exegete that text, interpretation. But then what, what guys don't do these days in the evangelical church is apply the text. The Bible gives us something to do. It's legalism when we say the Bible gives us something to do to merit salvation. But, but when we say the Bible gives us something to do in response of gratitude for the free salvation we have by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that's not legalism. That's just Christian faith. And the Bible gives us something to do, and it gives us something to do in all of life. It gives me something to do as a husband at home, and it gives me something to do as a pastor in church, and it gives me something to do as a citizen in the United States of America. That's that's so the church is distinct from a political rally in the sense that the, the politicians better not be administering the supper, um, but it shouldn't be, the church service shouldn't be distinct in the sense that we say uh, that, that, you know, like, like, I want to, I want to, we can't ever talk Joel, about and civil I issues. Create another distinction because you said politicians shouldn't, in, you know, be um, implementing the, the Lord's Supper, but we would you also say that a pastor at a political rally is not there to 
you know, institute the sacraments at that moment in time. No, because the sacraments, um, a pastor uh, can administer the sacraments, but then it's it's the object of who he administers them to. He Correct. needs to administer them to the And, and that's the my church. point in the distinction. It's not just politi- politician versus pastor, but even pastor at both of those distinct situations in those d- distinct environments, if that makes yes. sense. There's a difference between singing Psalm 2 and singing God Bless America, right? Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I do understand, you know, I've had friends of mine who have become more off-put to um, the politicization of the church. And, you know, again, I'm a very conservative Republican activist uh, who, who lives and breathes politics. And so I'll sit there and go, well, you know, I mean, I, I appreciate people talking about these issues and not letting the culture be completely ignored at the pulpit. But then they'll go, yeah, well, we saying God bless America, you know, first Sunday in July. And I'm like, OK, I don't know if I would do that because that, that to me is where all of a sudden you have this understanding that there are distinctions. Okay. And again, it's not to say that God is not the king over all, but there are distinctions. So Brian, would you please add? Well, to yeah. This? So there's a difference between me being a Christian and me being a citizen. And when I go to church, I'm there as a Christian. I'm, I'm a citizen, but people from all over the world ought to be in church there with me. And uh, they are, in fact, under different temporal governments, and yet we're under the same king and, and with the same confession. So when we confess the church Catholic, that's one of the things that we're confessing is that the church extends over the entire world. It's not bound to a particular nation. Uh, so the, the, in, in some ways, the, the divine service on Sunday morning is like a, an, an embassy of the kingdom of God on earth. It's a, it's a different kingdom in this place. When you say embassy, I think that's a good point, and I, I'm sorry to interrupt no, no, you, but uh, the idea that when we have the Chinese embassy in America, we literally declare that like American law does not apply within these little right. grounds. I mean, this particular little piece is, and the same thing with the American embassy within another country. It's like it's almost like it is a an acknowledgement of authority within this small little area in order to then kind of dwell together and understand each other and stuff right, like that. Right. So, and there's, so there's political, uh, there's uh, lots of places where Christians can disagree with each other politically. Uh, we're united in our confession of who Christ is and what his word says. That's where the unity comes from. And so the, the church has to be about uh, that confession of, of who Christ is. Uh, and, and so so we want to, as, as much as possible, keep the opinion stuff, as wise as it might be, out of the pulpit so that the thing that's preached is the word of God. Can you give an example of something that we could disagree on politically? Sure, sure. So, but, so one step to get there. One of the dangers that we face today is that things that are not political are, uh, are called political and then said to be off limits. Mm. So for example, questions about marriage or about man and woman or about abortion. These are said to be political. They're not political questions. Right. These are, these are human questions. Uh, these are moral questions, not political questions. And so th- th- one of the dangers that we face is when, when all the things about what it means to be a person or a human mm. or the good are said to be political and now those are off limits. That's bad. So I, I, I can't not speak of those things. I must speak of those things, not only because the law of God has to be stated clearly, but most especially because the church is the only place for hope for sinners. 
There's no hope at a political rally for eternal life. The, the church is the place that says that uh, to the one who's, who's mourning the murder of her own children, that Christ's blood covers your sin. The church is the place who comes and speaks to the people who are confused about whatever direction their lusts take or whatever confusion their identity has. It says that Jesus uh, died for you. He loves you. He forgives your sins. So Luther says that Jesus instituted the church. The Lord instituted the church for one purpose, and that's the forgiveness of sins, to distribute the forgiveness of sins. And that's where you get it. So if the church is not speaking clearly the blood of Jesus, which stands as the atoning sacrifice for all sins, then you, you, there's no other place for it. There's no, and there's no hope. The whole world is dark then. Mm-hmm. So there's a temptation for the church to, um, to in, I think, to either to be afraid of engaging in the, in the question of morality f- for the sake of seeming political. But the, the, there's a danger on the other side is it gauge th- that the gospel is never preached. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, here's a difference. Uh, I've got a couple of people at church who are monarch, monarchists. Mm. They think that the best government is to have a king. Right. That's fine. You can mm-hmm. be a Christian and be a, a monarchist rather than a elective. So that would be, I think, a difference. That's a good example. Yeah. But, yeah, your point is that we wouldn't have a discussion from the pulpit on the the virtues of monarchy or the benefits of democracy or the problems with our property tax system or, right. you know, right. why well, we don't have more well, openness in city hall. Yeah. And so we could maybe get, get to that. But I think that's where, I mean, and because theft is, is something that's against God's law that should be preached on. So I think that, uh, and, and that's maybe a good, you know, potential area of, of conversation because where, my dad always tells me that where you stand on a subject is often determined by where you sit. And sometimes I wonder if the reason I don't feel the need to have any property tax conversation in church is just because I talk about property taxes a lot throughout the week. So I probably don't walk in going like, I'd really like to hear about this. Um, and so, but the other part that I do appreciate is the fact that so many of these people that are walking into church to Brian's point when it comes to um, the administration of the sacraments and the forgiveness of sins, the proclamation of the gospel, uh, you know, the Lutheran liturgy is filled with forgiveness, right? We have the c- communal confession at the start. We have the Lord's Supper. We have, I mean, there's, th- and then we have the word preached. We have songs sung, and these are all preaching and singing and proclaiming forgiveness. Yeah. And so it's, it's just a massive, powerful, <laughs> eternal message uh, that transforms hearts and minds. So Joel, yeah, let's talk about maybe some slight distinctions there. Yeah. So I, I just think that as we're, it's all of Christ for all of life. Another way to say it, the, the whole counsel of God, right? It, so, so what I want to do is I want to be gospel centered, but I'm not a big fan of the recent gospel centered movement because it's not gospel centrality. What it became was gospel myopticism. It became gospel onlyism, um, And I think that what we've had within evangelical recent history for the last, you know, 50 so years is theological minimalism, which in some sense actually started from fundamentalism. Um, the, the fundamentalist 
uh, movement that, that had a lot of good, but one of the mindsets was this retreating mindset. They broke, the liberals have broken through the outer walls quick. Every fighting man go to the inner walls, defend, you know, the core, you know, the core theological tenets of the Christian faith, you know, the, the incarnation, the bodily resurrection. And, and, and I would say yes and amen. The inerrancy of scripture, yes and amen a, a thousand times. Um, but, but we've retreated and con- we, we've conceded so much theological ground. So the theological maximalism and minimalism. Another way to say that is, is we, we have two doctrines that we need to remember. Sola scriptura, but we also have tota scriptura. Sola scriptura, they're both governing, um, functions. So sola scriptura makes sure that, um, it, it has a minimizing expe- uh, effect. Only the scripture. Only the scripture, not man-made traditions, not the devices of men, um, but only the scriptures, the only breathed out infallible authority. It's the highest authority. So sola scriptura, scripture alone. Total scriptura has a, has a, um, a widening effect, um, to, to go all the way to the edges of scripture. Total scriptura says only the scriptura, uh, only the scripture, but all of the scripture. And, and what I've noticed within this gospel-centered everything movement, is that guys, they take a text, there's a way of preaching the text that misses Christ. And that's a problem. But there's a way of preaching Christ that misses the text. There's a way of springboarding off of any given text within about seven minutes, springboarding off of the text, never to return into your same gospel proclamation monologue that preaches the forgiveness of sins, but doesn't actually address what the text was saying. And so what I want to do is, Luther said, you know, there's three ways to err within the preaching of the church. You can preach law without gospel, and that's a hopeless dark world. You can preach gospel without law, uh, and and there really is no gospel at that point. Um, Or you can preach law and gospel without a clear distinction between the two. I think that's what we need, law and gospel. Um, And and the law is, is applied, is what God commands of us in every sphere of society, which includes the civil sphere. Um, and so I think we need to preach the law, uh, but not at the expense of the gospel, and not the gospel at the expense of the law, and we have to be careful not to blur the two. There's a dynamic distinction between the gospel itself, which is not about your life, it's not about humanity, it's not about society, it's about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's a proclamation of a historical event that centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we need the gospel, but we also need to talk about the fruit of the gospel, and we need to keep those two conversations distinct, but I do believe both conversations belong within the church. Bill. Yeah. So I heard somebody once say that the, the what, you know, what are we going to be doing in eternity? Right. Well, we're going to be getting to know God better. Right. Because we're going to get to know God better for all eternity because he's infinite and we're not. And so the entire point of eternity or big part of it is going to be getting to get know God better. Bring that back to the current day. And there is so much in Scripture. In, in, in God's word that we have no idea what it means today. We're, we're just basically, you know, we're only 2000 years into this. We're just basically touching the, the big parts, the outer parts of it. And there's so much more to do. For instance, you know, and the way we tend to do that as a church is through dealing with crises and, and problems mm-hmm. that are coming into us from the world. For instance, it took 300 years for the church to really start dealing with the deity of Jesus, Jesus right. Christ. Who is that, right? Well, why did they do that? Because people started attacking things. Protestant resistance theory. Why, why did why did that start coming up? Because the world was attacking us there, right? And then and then so today it's it's a different type of attack from the world, but it's still similar. The the world is telling us that you, you as Christians need to be put yourself over here with your faith. And that's where it stays. And unfortunately, a lot of the people in the church have, have started to to uh, to 
give in to that. Pietism. Right, pietism. And, and so what we have now is, is a need for the church to really dig in and start understanding this relationship between the church and God and the world around us, right? Government, all that kind of thing. And <laughs> we're just starting to do that, really. And, and you know, like, so, for instance, um, a great example of what needs to be done is Gary North. Right? Gary North mm-hmm. recently died. He spent 40 years of his life doing an economic commentary on the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, 40 years of his life. To, and then he came up with the, a few things after that. But is 40 years of his life doing that. And we hadn't even started to look at what the Bible tells us about economics. I, I think I think three, four, five hundred years in the future, we're going to look at what Gary North did as something akin to maybe the the Westminster Confession of Faith, mm-hmm. right? Because he is he's he's done the hard work now. We can start building off of that, and so I, I think that's really important for us to remember as we start thinking about uh, where the. Christians and the church go from here when it comes to relationships with government. Just to highlight what you said, I think that's really beautiful that we, so the heresies come to us as a blessing because for, for a couple of reasons, but like say the heresies on the person of Christ, they're sinful and they're wrong, but they provide an occasion for the church to reflect on the scriptures and to clarify what we confess. And so we have now heresies on, on gender or sex or marriage. And those heresies are, are a blessing or to us or, yeah, <laughs> because they, or what you're saying, I mean, on what it means to be religious, that religion is private, right? That's a heresy. Yes. Yeah. And so those heresies are a blessing to us, not because they're good, but because they do provide us occasion for turning back to the scriptures mm-hmm. and saying, where, where was I just kind of carrying forward cultural assumptions right. about man and woman or about marriage or whatever? And where was I holding to the word of God? So we can confess these things clearly. And, uh, and that's great. And, and then it also provides, so, uh, a chance for reflection, for confessing our past errors, for speaking clearly, and then for also for being courageous as well. Mm-hmm. So now I know I, I've thought through what it means that God created, uh, man and woman in his own image. And now I can confess that clearly. And apparently it takes courage now to say that, that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. I don't think you had to be courageous a couple of years ago, but now you do. And so that's great. So now I have an occasion to be courageous in confessing the Lord's word. So the, the, the Lord even uses the errors and the heresies to, to bless. Yeah. And so I just say, Luke, and, and, and we, we talked about this off camera a little bit, but th- this might be a great place for us to get into the concept of theonomy, you know, because we, we, we have this concept. I mean, God's law is comprehensive and tells us everything about life. Now, there are some details we need to work out from that, but if, if we don't start there as Christians, whether we're interested in, you know, in government or, or family or, or church, however it is, we're, we're, go- we're going to be untethered and we won't have any place to start. Yeah, we don't have a standard. Yeah. Well, I'll first of all forgive you for trying to be the moderator here for a second, <laughs> but that's okay. We will, we'll, we're going to move past that. We're going to look past it. Uh, we're going to understand, you know, we just talked about staying in your lane, right? <laughs> government, <laughs> government <laughs> family, everything like that. You just were like, I'm coming into this. Lane, I just thought okay. I didn't do it. Yeah, yeah. Joel, I was surprised. I, was, I expected that one from okay. Joel, but not from Bill. Okay. Jesus is Lord of this podcast. That's right. 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 That's right. The king, and we're just one sword. And I have the sword, and be okay. careful. Okay, so, uh, um, let's have a, uh, a brief conversation about that. Cause I do want to just, uh, tug at that a little bit for our listeners who don't 
know what theonomy may or may not be. And then we're also going to then close up this conversation with just an overall message to individual believers, members of the church, the universal church, uh, you know, on really what we want them to take away from this conversation. So with theonomy, Bill, we had a, a brief discussion about this um, off camera as well. I mean, I... I see theonomy as an actual form of government, right? And th there is a difference between theocracy and theonomy, but theonomy is still the way it, it's specific to government. And I think you have a distinction where you see theonomy as like an overarching view of God over the world. And I see theonomy as more of a view of God over government in particular. Is that where we would maybe disagree? Yeah, I think so. And and I'd really turn this over to, to Joel first and let him, because he's much more articulate, both of you <laughs> probably would be in, in describing this. So yeah. uh, I'll, I'll, I'll defer over there and yeah. add in after that. Are you yeah. sure? Great. Yeah. Yeah. There you okay. go. So I, I would just say that, you know, with everything, with everything, there's always a spectrum, you know, like with dispensationalists, not everybody, hold, you know, like John MacArthur said, I'm a leaky dispensationalist, whatever that means. So there's always a spectrum of, so where, where I'm at, and I think it sounds like Bill is at also is like, you could use like a phrase like general equity um, theonomy, you know, and so, but the, the word theonomy is just theos, namas, it's, it's God's law. Mm -hmm. And, and again, kind of this concept of it's not whether, but which, um, there's always going to be a law. So, so that, that's part of what people don't like. They don't like the idea of Christians imposing their morality on others, right? So the libertarian, Christian libertarian who's listening to this podcast will say, well, I believe in Jesus, you know, but that's private. That's my business, you know, within the four walls of my house. And, and, um, and I like that people are Christians, but don't go imposing your morality on me. But then, but then what we saw, right? So at first it was, um, it was just, you know, gay people just want to get married. You know, that's all they want. Um, and now it's, um, oh, and, and we want to indoctrinate your children through Disney and the public school. And we got there real fast, like, like less than 15 years. Right. And so like Obama was said that he, in his first term, that he believed that marriage was between a man and a woman. And so my point is, um, you know, people play on, on the victim kind of narrative and they play on, Oh, we just want to be left alone. We just want our rights to do this. Um, but, but what we see always is, is someone is always opposing, imposing morality on someone else. So the question is, um, which morality and, and, and who's it being opposed on? So with abortion, we have the morality of secularism, man's morality, which is always changing, always evolving. Uh, there's no uh, streamlined, um, eternal, immutable standard. We see man's morality being imposed on the baby. The baby is murdered. Um, as a Christian, I want God's law. I want theonomy. I want God's morality imposed on the mother, the abortion doctor, and um, the father in whatever way he was um, a partner to murder. If, if, you know, the, the mom got pregnant and he doesn't even know, then that would be a different story. But my, my point is, it's always, it's not whether but which, it's, it's whose morality, God's or man's, autonomy or theonomy. And then, and then how do we apply this? How do we impose this? So, so with, with theonomy, we're simply saying, I, I believe that God's law is not given to the church. It's not given to Christians. It's not given to religious organizations, but it's given to humanity. It's meant to be lived out. And the state has been instituted by God uh, for imposing God's standard, not, not his own. Uh, so when it says, you know, would you have no fear of the one who rules over you, right? He doesn't bear the sword for nothing. Would you have no fear of him? Then do what is right. But notice what, what Romans 13 doesn't say is it doesn't say, would you have no fear of the one who rules over you? Then do what he says. No, it says, then do what is right. Right according to who would be the question. Mm -hmm. And and so I think a slight distinction and Brian, you can come in here as well is because uh, you got theonomy, autonomy. I understand that. I think that the the general 
two kingdom approach to that is when we say that um, within government, natural law and reason uh, are the things that also help govern the laws of those lands. So when we say murder is wrong, that's because of natural law. The natural law giver is God. And there we there is a slight distinction between the Ten Commandments as God's law and then what he's instituted government to be. And and I know we, except it, natural it, law also tells us thou shalt not kill. Correct. Right? And my, but, but I would say that in within that, when someone says, if I, I would understand that if a secular person said, I want to govern this entire nation by natural law, it would be the law of themselves, whatever came out of their secular reason. But when Luther and Melanchthon discussed these kind of two kingdoms and they discuss the natural law and the reasons there, that is with the assumption that over the that natural law and over that kingdom is the king Jesus Christ, God, the creator. And so the assumption, it's really, it may be it's a distinction without a difference, but I, I do think there's a slight difference in the idea that they would just more distinctly say that the 10 commandments shouldn't be instituted. I know it's a simplification to say a theonomist would want all 10 commandments as laws of the land, but there would probably be more of God's law that a theonomist would want enforced as opposed to uh, someone who would not be a theonomist. Brian, do you have any commentary yeah, on that? I don't know. I'm curious about this question. What the difference between natural law and God's moral law? Divine law. Yeah. What's the? What, I think that would be the difference I would have. Well, but I'm not you, sure. Yeah. Quick, what do you, can you define natural law? Um. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I would say natural law would be uh, God's ordering of right and wrong that is accessible both externally through studying creation and internally through the conscience. So I agree 100%. So I would just say, so that's like Paul when he says, the Gentiles, you are a law unto yourselves. Right. Right? Even if you've never heard the gospel, even if you've never been a part of this Judeo-Christian system, um, you're a law unto yourselves because your own conscience bears witness against you. Mm-hmm. You know instinctively that this is wrong, this is right. But I would go beyond that all the way back to Romans 1, where um, he uses the same principle and the same logic. And he says uh, that there's something else that we can know, not just that um, that our brother is our neighbor and that we should do him no harm, not just that murder is wrong, um, but that something else that we should know by way of natural revelation um, is that there is a God in heaven um, and his divine attributes have been clearly perceived so that all men are without an excuse, an right. apology, a defense, namely his eternal power, his divine nature. And so I would say that gets us even within the, the Ten Commandments, moral law, that gets us the first four, the first table, um, that, that we should not be idolaters, no other God before him. Um, and, and so I would say uh, divine law and natural law would, in my assessment, the, the way that people, this isn't what I would say, but I think this is what others say. They would look to natural law saying it's the second table of the law, the, the Ten Commandments. It's the commandments that pertain to how we should love our neighbor, commandment five through ten, which just for the listener, we keep assuming that they all have the Ten Commandments memorized. <laughs> but starting with five, honor your father and mother. Six, do not murder. Seven, do not commit adultery. Eight, do not steal. Nine, do not bear false witness. Ten, covet. Uh, don't covet. And then the first four being, no other gods before me, no graven images, do not take the Lord's name in vain, and um, the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. We also have different l- numbering on the commandments too. But What? Oh, yeah, of course. You didn't? Yeah, yeah. But Oh, you guys don't have the yeah, second Yeah, yeah, because we believe in uh, idolatry by worshiping images. That's right. Yeah. So you guys, you take, you take, well, what they do is they take coveting and they make it two commandments. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> don't okay. covet the wife and then don't covet the stuff. 
No, don't cover the, the house first and then. Okay, the stuff first and then the wife second? Yeah. No, yeah. no, no, the house first. And then wife, okay. friends, ever maves are off shonky. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Things okay. without legs, things without. Uh, no matter. Go ahead. So, but uh, no, I would agree <laughs> with you that natural law also does not permit a secular law, that right. that worship mm-hmm. of God is included in natural law. I think yes. that's different. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, so um, I agree with that. There, uh, just a, I mean, Luther, again, no, there's no, never a civilization that didn't acknowledge God right. or a God, mm-hmm. right. uh, including our own. Demos is God. In our own man mm-hmm. is God. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think that I'm a, yeah, but although, so I am wrestling with this just personally. I, and I think the Lutherans are wrestling with this now because we, we probably come from a natural law tradition, but do you have, so there, there's just the problem of, so if you, if you, God's law is revealed in nature, mm-hmm. externally, internally, it's also yes. revealed in the scripture. The problem is that I'm motivated as a sinner I'm motivated to not see God's law written in nature and the conscience. To lie and suppress the truth right, and deeds right. of unrighteousness. Right, right. So, so while we could imagine the possibility of a, of a righteous government through natural law apart from revelation, you can imagine the possibility. You never get to that possibility. Everyone who's tried has failed and, and just simply because, um, yeah, the knowledge of God is suppressed. So, so I'm motivated. I'm, as a sinner, motivated against listening to what God says of me, both according to my guilt and according to his righteousness. Mm-hmm. I, real quick, so I do think this is why postmillennialism and theonomy do, um, do they, they correlate to one another. Because because this is what what I've noticed. It's not so much a theological distinction that we would have with one another. Even with somebody who's, you know, pre-mill dispensational like, like John MacArthur, I've noticed if we get down to the brass tacks and we say, all right, well, Jesus says, if you love me, you obey me. Okay, great. So what are his commandments? Well, he has two. The greatest commandment, love God, you know, and, you know, with all your heart, soul, mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, these are two tables of the law. This, uh, How do we flesh out? How do we love God? How do we love people? The Ten Commandments. Okay, do these have uh, implications in the home? Yes. Do they have implications in the church? Yes. Do they have implications in larger, broader society? Yes. And me and John MacArthur would be right there, hand in hand, the whole time. And and this is where we differ. It's not over a theological disagreement. It's it's not a matter of theology. It's a matter of possibility. He just doesn't think it'll happen. He just doesn't think it'll work. And and so what what I would say is I would say, well, this is where our eschatology comes into play. And so you're like you're saying it's never happened. And I say. Um, it's never happened perfectly, but there are varying degrees within nations that have gotten closer than others. It's no, no, not like everyone has failed equally. No, no. What I'm saying is that there, there's never, apart from the revelation of the Ten Commandments. So like the old Romans, the old Greeks, the old philosophers, they were trying to craft right. a government okay. on natural law. And yes. that's never, never happened. So uh, now has it happened even with the revelation of the Ten Commandments? Probably also not there well, not either. Perfectly, but, but I would say that that um, with so you're right. I agree with that 100. Uh, percent We need we need special revelation, um, and 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 we need Christians to um, to be integral in positions of leadership and influence and affluence and all those kinds of things. And as we've seen that happen over the last two thousand uh, years of church history in various different civil governments that were Christianized, uh, that, that that were basically working from the Christian uh, worldview as their foundation, we have seen I think varying degrees of success and varying degrees of failure. And, and so for me, as, as not just someone who would adhere to general equity theonomy, but then someone who is also post-millennial, um, I, I tend to think that uh, we, we may have another 30,000 30, years or so before the return of Christ. And if that's the case, then, then I would say, okay, I think we could, I think we could do this. Yeah. That, yeah. That's what amazes me is, is the impatience of Christians today. And the, that, 
you know, we think it all has to happen right now, right? Like racial unity, right? Racial unity is going to come, but trying to impose it on the church now just isn't going to work. God is at work in us and he and he's promised us these things will come to pass, right? God told us at the beginning of, of, of creation to go out and have dominion, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and, and subdue it, right? And then Jesus came and told us uh, to make disciples of the nations and teach them to obey all that I have commanded, right? So my question to, to folks who think that we're going to hell in a handbasket would be, do you think that God and Jesus would really give us a task that we're going to fail at? Or is he going to come alongside of us as our king and as our Lord and as our brother and as our, our husband and as our savior and bring all those things to pass? Right. And, and that's where I ultimately come down. Why, why would he give us a task that he's not going to have us complete? In yeah. conclusion, because um, this could go on for a very long time and we could just 30,000 years. Yeah, yeah. No <laughs> See, that's what I mean. See, look at we just, we're barely in. Uh, he just touches on it that I'm like, we're not, we're not going there. We're not going there because I've really well, at least 10,000 years. We get amazing grace, right? Yeah. That's, that's afterwards. But that's right. Yeah. But anyway, that's afterwards. no, yeah. but I uh, very much appreciate y'all coming, having this conversation. It, uh, it, it was a difficult conversation to think about how to craft, if that makes sense, because they're just, when we're talking about these, specific kingdoms or realms or spheres or in things that were instituted by God and then a, a God who has saved each and every one of us through the accomplished work of his son on the cross, which we just celebrated two Sundays ago. And for us, it's going to be a, uh, you know, 50 day season um, that we get to walk in and celebrate in uh, to understand. And, and I, I hope that as Christians have been able to listen to this, uh, they can take away certain thoughts. And, and like I said, my ultimate goal is that more Christians would take these kind of things into consideration when deciding then how to live, how to apply themselves, how to engage in government, how to engage in culture, um, and so on and so forth. So Bill, why don't you just kind of wrap us up and at this point, uh, you know, give us one or two minutes as just kind of a close out to this conversation. Well, I think I really just did close out, you know, in, in a way. I, know, I just felt bad about not giving you an opportunity to close <laughs> okay. out. So I was the, the, we, we, we've got this wonderful, marvelous future in front of us that God has got, God has laid out a pathway for, for creation and the time we're here on earth before Christ's second coming. And, and we, as we talked a lot about submission here, we really need to submit to our Lord in that, in discovering that plan because we're still all trying to figure that out and then, then living it out in our lives. And, um, and, and we shouldn't give up hope, uh, in, 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 grasping hold of the promises that God has for us as we go through that. And that's particularly important today, I think, when it comes to politics, because it's so easy to look at the world around us and just give up and just say, it is going to hell in a handbasket. And it looks like it. But, you know, if you go back to Rome 2000 years ago, we're actually in pretty good shape yep. compared to that. And, and, you know, we're all blinded. We, we look at the area we're in and the time we're in that's and right. we forget, you know, I mean, like, if you lived in, you know, Chicago today, you know, if you really knew what was going on in Texas, everybody would move down here, right? Because that, that's a terrible place to live in, in most part. So I'd just say Christians shouldn't give up hope. They should submit to the Lord and look for his fulfillment to come and be studying that and figuring out how to our role in carrying that out as we move forward. 
Joel. Yeah. Amen. Um, so I was just, you know, part of what got me into theonomy and post-millennial eschatology was uh, in, in a large part, it's, it's Matthew 28, the great commission, you know, that all authority, Jesus is reigning, currently reigning at the right hand of the majesty on high, but, but he says he has authority on earth and in heaven, all authority on earth and, and in heaven has been given to me. And I would see it as one commandment, not four, but make disciples. And how do you do it? You go, you baptize and you teach and, and you're teaching not just individuals, but nations. And you're teaching them uh, toda scriptura to obey all of Christ's commands and all the implications and applications in every realm of human life. And so the only question left, I think that gives us the theology. That's theonomy in a nutshell. I know that some would disagree, but I would say that's the theonomy piece. So the only other question is, will it work? And that's Matthew 16. So Matthew 28, what? And then Matthew 16, will it, will it work? Matthew 16 says, I will build my church. Christ as the head of the church, I will build my church, not just sustain, not just survive, but I will advance, increase, build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is not on the ropes getting wailed on by hell, uh, but that Christ, you know, that will ultimately be saved by the bell. Um, wh whether it's, whether it's pessimistic eschatology or optimistic eschatology, both believe that Christ wins. The only question is how does he win despite a, a, a weak and dying church? Um, or does he win through a militant and triumphant church? And I would say that Christ is the head of the church. The church is his body. The church is his body that is doing his will in heaven on earth, um, that Christ is ruling and reigning through his body, the church carrying out his will on earth as it is in heaven. And, and he has promised that the church not only will it survive, but it will build, it will increase. And, and hell, it's not the, the sword of hell, or the weapons of hell, it's the defensive measure, the gates of hell. Hell is on the ropes. Hell is being pushed back. And, uh, and the church is the battering ram of Christ that will prevail. Brian, I, I, maybe to piggyback on that, because I believe it, but I think that the success of the church looks a lot like the success of Jesus, which was a crucifixion. And, and so the, we are uh, more than conquerors through him who loved us, but our conquering is that we are lambs led to the slaughter, that we're dying daily, but that in the weakness of the church, uh, and even in the weakness of God and Christ, his kingdom comes. So this com the compelling vision that the scripture ends us with is uh, that Jesus is on the throne. So that's the first thing we forget, that Jesus is ruling and reigning all things for the sake of the church. Mm -hmm. And that the one who's on the throne is the lamb who was slain. So that Jesus is ruling and reigning all things with holes in his hands and his feet and his side. He All things for us, which means there's nothing to fear. There's no judgment to fear. There's no condemnation to fear. There's no... Uh, even our sin has, has all been forgiven for all of us, that all, all of our sins are forgiven. And so we can live and die in the freedom that comes from that forgiveness. And that compels us to, to love our neighbor, to serve our neighbor, even to lay down our lives for our neighbor. God be praised because Christ has laid down his life for us. And that, uh, with that vision of the throne and on the throne, the lamb who was slain, that, that is a rallying call for uh, for the church, for our families, for each of us. It's beautiful. We, um, just last Sunday, we, you know, touched on John 20. And I was thinking of in closing this conversation, because we've had a lot of 
conversation about government, about uh, how they're instituted, our relationships. We've all quoted various scriptures all around. And I love the end of John 20. It says, there were many things, signs and wonders, things that Jesus said that were done in the presence of the disciples that are not written. So mm-hmm. things that we didn't comment on. Heck, he might have had some governmental commentary at some point that didn't make its way into Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And then the question is, well, why are the things that are there, there? And John 20 ends by saying, but these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so our ultimate hope is that anyone listening here would also just know, uh, one, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, they would have life in his name, because the life they will have in his name will work regardless of the government they are under, regardless of what city they are in, regardless of their property tax rate, regardless of any of those outside things that we care and discuss and figure out and wrestle with how we as believers in that truth, then how that affects our life. And so I've appreciated y'all's willingness to sit down and talk through that. Ultimately, I hope that each and every person listening to this conversation also can come back and remember that even the words that were said, even the scriptures that were quoted, ultimately all of that was given to us so that we may believe in Jesus and that by believing we may have life in his name. Uh, Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Luke Messiah Show. This program is brought to you by Scorecard Media. Check out texasscorecard.com to read up on all things Texas. Scorecard Media has other podcasts as well. Yeah, they're not as good as this one, but you should still check them out. Honestly, though, visit texasscorecard.com to see all the content they're producing on a daily basis. If you'd like our podcast to grow, please consider subscribing to the show on whatever platform you listen on and leave a review. That helps others find the content we're producing. Thank you. God bless you, and God bless Texas.